Thanks for tuning in to WIHI. If you're looking to assess your workplace's culture of safety, then you'll definitely want to take advantage of the opportunity to work with IHI's expert faculty to design a plan tailored to your organization and learn how to implement proven safety changes. Join us at the Patient Safety Executive Development Program, taking place March 12th to 18th, 2020, in Boston, Massachusetts. Reserve your spot at IHI.org PSE. That's PSE for Patient Safety Executive. Now, here's WIHI. Patients don't typically know whether the healthcare provider examining them or performing a procedure or having a conversation about a health condition, including test results, is maxed out. There's no flashing sign that says, this practitioner is currently experiencing cognitive overload and may say or do something that causes harm. So that's not going to happen. And it's not easy to tell which doctors or nurses or pharmacists have reached their limit because of constant interruptions, administrative tasks piling up, faulty alarms going off, flaws in electronic health records, and so on. What doctor or nurse also wants to admit to being compromised in any way? So preventing things from getting to this point is a much better way to go, don't you think? And how do you do that? Can the field of human factors help? Well, we've got some evidence it certainly can. That's on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live and then you can find us after the show as an archived edition on IHI.org and as a podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm IHI's Director of Communications as well. And I also want to say Happy New Year to everyone. This is our first WIHI of 2020. So here's what many love about human factors. That's the idea that it's possible to make it easier for people to do the right thing and avoid doing the wrong thing. Workload-related stress isn't immune from these dynamics, and it can benefit from human factors, too. On the phone from Philadelphia, we have James Wan. He's the manager of Human Factors Engineering for the Center for Healthcare Quality and Analytics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP. He's also adjunct assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine and lecturer at the School of Engineering. And he is currently leading the Human Factors Program at CHOP. And also on the phone today in New Orleans, we have Frank Federico. He's a vice president and senior safety expert at IHI, working in the areas of patient safety and the application of reliability principles in healthcare. Uh, Frank is faculty for the IHI Patient Safety Executive Training Program, and he has co-chaired a number of patient safety collaboratives uh, locally, nationally, globally. Welcome, Frank. Hello to you in New Orleans. All right. Well, you know, Frank and I have been talking about this for a while. We're so thrilled uh, that we've gotten to know James Wan and uh, lots of stuff to unpack today. And we're going to start with Frank, um, who's going to just sort of start leading us into this uh, topic, and hopefully we'll just keep peeling this onion. So, Frank, let's start with this. Have workload and stress always been understood as a threat to patient safety. And my question is, in part, is more going on in this space uh, that we should be more concerned or are we just appreciating it more? Thanks. Is There has been a greater acknowledgement of workload and stress and the impact that it has on productivity. In healthcare, I think we've, we learned about it very early on from James Reason and others that workload and stress would impact uh, performance. But I don't think we ever put enough energy or thought behind it. We worked on things, as you said at the beginning, of trying to make it easy to do the right thing and difficult to do the wrong thing. And we learned a little bit about how important it was to address fatigue and uh, people who were tired because we heard that from the airline industry with limiting pilot hours, et cetera. But when it comes to actually making interventions to improve safety, I think we missed out on taking advantage of what human factors experts can teach us. 
today it's becoming more evident because we are facing a crisis in healthcare. There's a survey that indicates that, and depending on the survey you use, up to 50% of doctors complain of burnout. A third of nurses complain of burnout. And in a survey of pharmacists, over 50% of the pharmacists were acknowledging that they feel burnt out. So the numbers are significant. Why is this happening? Well, healthcare continues to get more and more complex as we introduce new technologies, as we introduce new ways of treatment. Our patients are getting sicker. They continue to be unrealistic expectations of what we can accomplish in the time that we have. And of course, our favorite, the electronic health record, is one that has been blamed for quite a bit of the burnout because it causes you to have to change your workflow. It takes you away from the patients that you are dedicated to working on. In our experience with the Patient Safety Development Program, we focus a lot on helping people understand what those human factors dimensions are. Now, we are not going to make people human factors experts. That's the, in the realm of James and the work as his colleagues. But we do want to make sure that people just get an appreciation of what's going on so that as they design or investigate events, they can get a better sense of what's going on. We know that we overestimate our abilities and underestimate our limitations. And I have an example of a pharmacist who just uh, volunteered to work an extra shift because we had a sick call. And halfway through the second shift, the pharmacist made a significant error. When we debriefed and tried to understand what happened, she stopped and reflected and said, you know, I thought I could work all this extra time, but I didn't realize how tired I was. Well, that's common. That happens a lot for all of us. There are external stimuli that affect our ability to handle the situation, things like noise, distraction, environmental conditions, too hot, too cold, how processes are designed. And also we have that natural reaction, which is the internal fight or flight response. That is when you feel stress, you release hormones, those Hormones then contribute to anxiety, contribute to increased heart rate, which then sets off this vicious cycle if you can't get to a position where you're removing the stressful situation. Next slide, please. The impact is that when we are overloaded with work, we all get incompetent. We make unforced errors. We make poor decisions when we are trying to do our work. When one member of the team is feeling stressed, that sort of permeates the rest of the team and causes the rest of the team to start feeling stressed as well. And a good management system would be to work together to figure out how to relieve that stress. And what happens oftentimes is communication gets shortcut or communication breaks down. And the result of we know of poor communication is that patients are going to suffer from the consequences. Now, as we continue this understanding of what we happens when we work, there's some beautiful graphics that I think help us understand what that is. So if we go to the next slide, I can quickly explain the approach. When we look at performance and workload, that we have a certain amount of stress and workload that I think is helpful to us because if we don't do anything, we tend to get bored and we don't be actually work and are very productive. But we tend to reach a peak at one point with workload and when the stress is really significant. It's when we're coming down on the other side of the peak that we hit the danger zone. That's the area where we're most likely to get into trouble. That's where think bad things happen during the work that we do. However, we all manage stress differently. And if we look on the next slide, we can show that some of us have a higher tolerance and the bigger area under the curve and some of us have less. However, it also is not just the individual, but it's also on the task that we're working on. Some tasks are more stressful than others. We've learned from the airline industry, for example, that pilots who fly short hop flights, that is lots of takeoff and landing, takeoff and landing, are the most stressful part of a flight. And those individuals suffer more stress and more burnout than an individual pilot who's flying across the Atlantic Ocean because the really stressful parts are the takeoff and landing. So we have to take that into account when we look at how people perform under stress. The issue that I think is really important that we need to think about is that right now the measurement of the impact of stress and workload on harm is not that strong. That is, we know that certain distractions cause 
people to make mistakes. We know the contributing factors, but not the um, situation of burnout itself. Most of the studies that are out there are self-reported studies, mostly done by physicians. And it turns out that depending on which study you're looking at, it could be that physicians who say they're experiencing burnout uh, report two to three times more often that they've made a mistake. In a study that came out of the Mayo proceedings, there was a 10.5% of the doctors who said that they made a major mistake. This is 10.5% of the doctors who said they were experiencing burnout. The part that I worry about is that we're spending a lot of time focusing on the burnout, but we're not focusing on what contributes to that burnout because the ability to then figure out, take deep breaths, take a break, walk away, really only affects that immediate moment. It doesn't affect what contributed to the burnout. So if we go to the next slide, a colleague of ours, Chris Hayes, who is a Harkness fellow and spent some time with IHI, developed a model that he calls highly adoptable improvement. And the way he looks at it, and we've incorporated this into a lot of our training as well to help people when they are looking at this designing new processes or redesigning other processes, is that we often are at a level of workload where we complete some improvement work. During that improvement work, we have a bump in activity, but then we return down to the same level we had before. That's acceptable. However, if we truly design systems with thinking of human factors in place and using the principle of simplification, when we have these improvement efforts, we should actually be decreasing that workload. We should be making it easier to do work. In reality, what I find more often than not is that the solution to the problems we're trying to solve are probably more complex than the problem itself. We add more checklists, we add more workload, we add more assessments, and what we wind up doing is increasing the workload. And that's what's contributing to stress. That's the whole concept of reaching a particular point of performance where you no longer can perform well. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Frank. I really, really appreciate that. And uh, thanks for the imagery. Thanks also to uh, Chris Hayes uh, for his work as well. We'll come back to this. All right. Well, James, um, hopefully this uh, uh, resonates uh, in terms of uh, what's been going on for you and the work you've been doing at CHOP. I thought we should start, however, with uh, making sure that everyone understands uh, what human factors engineering uh, encompasses. And uh, Frank alluded to some ways it's already contributed to safety in healthcare in terms of uh, encourage, you know, making it more possible that the right things will happen. But if you want to elaborate on that, please do as well. Let's just get make sure we're all on the same page there for starters. Thanks, James. Um, I think uh, I think so much of what Frank mentioned um, are going to be uh, what I talk about today. Uh, it's really just a blessing to have this opportunity to share a little bit of my experiences. I've been at, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia just about a little over three years um, and uh, part of the Center for Healthcare Quality and Analytics uh, as Madge mentioned. I also uh, do want to mention this network that I'm, I'm a part of called Human Factors Transforming Healthcare. Uh, we're a group of human factors practitioners that are embedded in health systems. Um, and I know many of you, um, I've gotten a lot of calls from folks asking how they can get human factors more integrated. So uh, if you would like to get involved, you can email me. You can visit our website, uh, hfthnetwork.org. Um, in addition to uh, everything that was mentioned in my bio, um, I do have to start with this, and <laughs> I consider this actually as my most important job, and that's as an assistant pastor for my church and my Bible study group. It's called ABSK. Uh, and as such, um, I am going to start with a Bible verse, and no, this is not going to be a sermon, uh, but it, it absolutely reflects how I approach uh, my work, my life, this topic of workload, stress, and human factors. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 31, it says that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And I think you might think that's a fairy tale. Your work is never going to be like that or is not like that. But I genuinely believe that this is how we were made to be, that our workload really should not make us weary and faint. And, and perhaps I'm a romantic, but uh, this is how I believe our lives, how our work ought to be with hope and renewed strength. And I believe we can have that in a work system as Madge described, wherein we make things easy to do the right thing, 
and that we make it difficult or even impossible to do the wrong thing. And to me, that is really the crux of what a highly reliable system is and what I believe um, the role of human factors engineering uh, to be the key in achieving that goal. And so just to level set, make sure that we're all on the same page, when I refer to human factors or human factors engineering, um, it's an interdisciplinary science that looks at and examines the human interaction with our environment, with our system around us. And furthermore, we take that examination and that analysis and we are able to then design innovative solutions that are thoroughly human-centric, ultimately with the goal of maximizing human performance, with the goal of maximizing system performance. And while human factors overall uh, throughout various industries has, has, has had many, um, as Frank mentioned, aviation, um, it's had a lot of effect. Um, and it, ha it has had contributions to safety and healthcare in the past decade or so, um, you know, such as reducing medical errors, uh, infection rates. Uh, I believe that we still have a long ways to go in order to fully integrate human factors. And I think for us to get to that highly reliable system, we've got to really integrate it into the fabric of each and every one of our health systems. James, what does it look like uh, in uh, a health system today? When you walk around um, uh, the, the uh, organization, the hospital, clinics, or whatever, um, do we know <laughs> when there's stress-related or unmanageable workload going on, or is it well hidden? Um, I'm sure there's a range here, but in what ways is it evident? I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges. And even amongst us as personal uh, friendships or colleagues, a lot of times this aspect of stress, uh, it's, it's a difficult thing for us to, to key in on. Now, I know there are human factors researchers doing a lot of re research on potentially physiological measurements to detect stress and things like that. Um, but, Madge, as you mentioned, walking around the hospital, it's hard to really pinpoint that. And furthermore, um, the way we uh, oftentimes do our cause analyses and things like that, stress, um, those kinds of things we, we attribute to basic human reaction. And so we don't necessarily attribute um, cause to those kinds of things. I guess to, again, level set a little bit, one definition of stress that I, I would like to use and that I like um, and there's lots of different definitions for this, but one definition that I like is uh, that stress is our human response to a gap between the perceived demands of the situation and the perceived ability to cope with those demands. So stress is, is our response to a gap between the demands and our ability to cope. So if we take that as our def definition of stress, and then if we, I, I suppose, take a very simplistic definition of workload to be the demands and that could be either physical or mental or both, um, upon humans. So demands placed upon humans, then that's our workload. And so then we can start picturing how high workload then can lead to high stress. And then we can see how that can have consequences such as medical errors and burnout. And so one simple model, as, uh, as is shown on your slide, uh, is, is called the limited capacity model that, that describes this phenomenon. This, so if we take a look at this model, it's a little easier to do with animation, but hopefully I can describe this well. Uh, it, the curve that shows resources allocated to primary tasks, we can view that as the demands of a particular situation. So right now, as you're listening to me, you are allocating a certain amount of resources, whether it's your auditory resources, your cognitive resources, you're allocating resources to this particular task. What this model says is that we, all of us as humans, we have a maximum amount of resources, and that's shown by that horizontal line that we can allocate to a task. And then the difference between that maximum and what we allocate is what we refer to as spare capacity. What the model shows is that the better our spare capacity, then the better our performance, which is on the right axis. But when we max out and we have no capacity, many of us use these words such as, oh man, I had no room to think today or I had no capacity. What this says is that when our spare capacity is maxed out, then we no longer have that cognitive capacity and that is when we see a decrease in our performance. Now, given our definition of stress that I began with, that gap, gap between our demands and our ability to cope, then we can see how stress increases when this spare capacity decreases, when we have no spare capacity, 
And then that ultimately affects our performance. And to me, that's how I think about the relationship between stress and how that affects my performance. I think a lot of us have anecdotal thoughts about how that relationship is made, but I think this gives kind of a model base and a, and a linear relationship between that. Now, on the right side, when the right thing is difficult to do, then that's when the workload is high. And so then one goal of the human factors is to bring us back to the green zone where the right thing is easy to do. But as Matt mentioned, one of the problems is that this drop-off, this red line that you see, is, is difficult to detect or predict. And we as humans, we all have differing ways in which we deal with stress and workload, as Frank mentioned on his plot. Now, some of the research has shown that variability in performance can be a precursor, but I really think we need to, as a community, dig into this a little bit more, uh, where we can honestly acknowledge and deal with these issues. And the last thing that I'm going to mention is that as we honestly acknowledge and deal with these issues, I think psychological safety comes into play here, because some of these issues that we haven't been comfortable um, as an entire institution, um, I used to work in aviation and same sort of thing, where we didn't want to talk about things like fatigue or or workload and things like that. But I think, um, Chop, we're, we're um, on a push to bring psychological safety really into, the, into play as we talk about root cause analysis and different things. But what we need to do is to acknowledge that, yes, all of us, we're very busy. But ultimately, it's not just about me sucking it up and dealing with it, but to acknowledge and know that we are all humans and that as humans, we have limits. And when the system or the environment potentially puts us at those limits, then we need to acknowledge that and that we're not only putting ourselves in jeopardy, but then we're putting our patients at risk as well. And that's what we need to acknowledge and deal with. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to shift now and ask you a little bit about some of the things you've been working on at uh, CHOP. I'm wondering, does having an expert like you, a model like this, limited capacity model, sorry, it isn't uh, dynamic uh, uh, in people's view right now, but I think we get the idea. Does this help to, have, you know, gaining legitimacy? I mean, you're talking about psychological safety, and I'm sure many people want to say, I'm not sure I can deal with one more thing, or please don't tell me that right now. Can you wait five minutes? I, I'll, I'll have uh, some spare capacity to take in this important information. Um, it, I'm just wondering, does this, it's almost, it gives it a kind of science or legitimacy, and I'm wondering, is that what you're finding in this whole space right now? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I feel really blessed uh, and so thankful for, for CHOP. Um, CHOP has really taken that initiative to commit to integrating human factors um, and taking this scientific approach to how we do even our improvement work, what our traditional improvement work would be like. Um, you know, we're operating at or over capacity many days, um, but you know, we as a hospital, um, our leadership has made a commitment to incorporate human factors into our health system so that we can tackle these uh, difficult issues um, and really, really do the best that we can to deliver the best care uh, to our patients. And then if we think about workload and stress, I think what's important to provide good patient care is this recognition that we need to take care of those providing care to the patient. And I think everyone on the line agrees with that. And this is where, you know, I believe, and Frank alluded to this, is, is tackling this issue of burnout um, that I believe that this is what we really need to be able to do is integrate human factors, look at workload, um, because that's the hard work of addressing this burnout issue. And I just want to mention one thing uh, is that I, I, I want to give credit to things like yoga and vacations. Um, <laughs> uh, and trust me, I love my vacations more than anybody. Um, and th those are absolutely important. But... Um, as Frank mentioned, they're only going to provide temporary fixes to this burnout issue because ultimately they are orthogonal to the primary root of burnout, which is the workload, the level of workload that causes the stress and fatigue and decreased performance. Here at CHOP, I've been blessed to interact and work with so many wonderful, wonderful um, folks. The folks on the front line are just amazing. And you, you see that the work itself is the reason why they are here. They're here for the mission of CHOP to take care of these kids. And it is such a blessing and humbling to work with these folks. 
But then we need to understand then what is it that has caused this work and the load of this work to get to this point to burn us out. And I think that's where we need to do some more analysis um, and potentially bring in the human factors analysis to look at that work and to streamline that work to indeed make it easier for people to do this work that they already find the meaning and purpose in, but we need to make it easier for them to be able to do that work. Okay. Can you give an example or two, and then I'll bring uh, uh, Frank back in uh, for some reflections on some of what he's heard. Uh, Can you give us uh, something that uh, has had your attention, uh, Chop? Sure. Um, I'll just do one one example, and it's a concept that we've been developing here. Uh, It was started actually by a former member of our team named Allison Kosadar. It's a a concept called cognitive lifting. because a lot of times we can get our heads around the concept of physical workload, how much I lift or how much I walk or run, those kinds of things. But oftentimes, uh, Madge, as you mentioned, this cognitive aspect or the cognitive workload, it gets neglected because it's actually more difficult and harder to see. But in, my, in many cases, in my opinion, um, it's actually more of a significant factor, especially when we look at safety events, um, where we started developing this concept of cognitive lifting. And so it started uh, from a project we did with our Department of Radiology and our Associate Chief of Radiology, Dr. Raymond Z. We were looking to, we were doing well, but we were looking to reduce the rate of mislabeled exams uh, for our portable x-rays. And uh, Dr. Z wanted to take a, a different approach to how we did this. And, and so what our human factors assessment, what, we, what it revealed wasn't this sort of blame culture thing where, oh, so-and-so messed up. But actually, what, what our assessment revealed was simply these, these humans, these techs, there was a high level of cognitive load um, that they were experiencing. And so instead of kind of the, the old-fashioned um, would be the culture of blame that somebody was to blame, um, we chose to kind of take a step back and see it from a macro system perspective on this issue. And in particular, take a look at these various systems issues that led to what we examined to be high levels of cognitive workload upon the x-ray technician, and then how that could potentially contribute uh, to these errors. And so cognitive lifting, this concept, what it mimics, uh, it's it's the symbol that you you see when you go to Ikea and you buy large furniture. If, If any of you have been to Ikea, you see that there's a symbol that indicates whether it's too heavy for one person and requires two people to lift it. Now, if a box is too heavy for one person to lift, then what can you do? Well, first option is you find a friend. Uh, Hopefully, you have a friend nearby who can help you lift the box. Or your second option is you can unpack that box. Perhaps some of those components are not needed right away to make the box lighter and more appropriate for one person to lift. So we took those concepts, this concept of cognitive lifting, and we incorporated both of those options. One with the find a friend solution, we employed uh, a human factors framework for teamwork between the technician and nurse. And we were able to employ that to be more predictive in terms of how that communication and how that teamwork happened in finding a friend to help you lift the box. And then two, in order to unpack the box, um, we did this uh, method called cognitive task analysis, which revealed these cognitive tasks um, for the technician. And we, what it revealed were various tasks that were unnecessary for a technician to be lifting. And what we were able to do is then redistribute some of those tasks. Now, taking this cognitive lifting concept, then it was uh, really great um, because we were able to establish a successful partnership with radiology, with nursing, quality improvement, human factors. We all came together, took this concept, and um, it, was, it was amazing. And we were able to dramatically decrease um, our portable x-ray uh, error rate. And just just last plug I'm going to make is we're also uh, working with our oncology on a separate project, sorry, um, but with our oncology division on a project called Workload Workforce, um, where our leadership has uh, taken the taken the initiative to say, hey, can we be better, smarter about how we do workforce estimates? And so this project is aiming to look at how to improve our workforce estimates, how to improve our staffing model by optimizing both physical and cognitive workload. And so as we have progress on that, um, I'd be happy to share that later on with anyone who's interested. Thank you so much. Uh, Lots of uh, stuff in there, really. And questions are beginning. 
So let me turn to you, uh, Frank. You've been listening. Uh, familiar stuff. And uh, feel free to comment on anything you've heard. Uh, I am also curious um, whether you feel that uh, some of the things that James uh, has been telling us um, are actually starting to resonate more globally. But first, any any thoughts at all on what you've heard? Thanks, Frank. Sure, Mitch. So a um, couple of things that come to mind and in, in the work that we do and the work we do around the world. Yes, this is a problem everywhere. It's not just a problem in the United States. Uh, the level of burnout may be different or maybe people aren't even addressing it that way. But it's important that we understand that we have to get to the root of the problem. Most of the times in healthcare, what I'm finding is when people conduct a root causes analysis, the number one intervention is more training and education, or we're going to write a new policy, or we're just going to ask people to be more vigilant. And I think that they're missing the point that if something bad happened, they should investigate much more deeply, as James said earlier, in understanding the human condition. What happened during that event? What was contributing to that event? Because just training people again and again to do the same thing when they're failing is only going to train them to fail more and more. So we have to really understand the root of the problem. And I'm a firm believer that if we can get to why something's not working in the first place, rather than adding another checklist or another double check, for example, we can actually make it easier because we can address that in the beginning. The other component that's really important is the culture piece. And James alluded to that, that I think that in all of this work, and one of our participants mentioned uh, in the chat box as well, that this has to start with leaders. The leaders of the organization, one have to look in the mirror and seeing what's their day like, because they're experiencing burnout as well. There's a lot going on that's not direct clinical care, but they're feeling all the stress and everything that's going on every day in their lives. And if they begin that process, they can then make the time and the space to go visit the workplace and understand the processes that are there. For me, any time that somebody develops a workaround, that should be a trigger to understand what's wrong with the process the way we designed it. Why are people using workarounds and they're not using the process that we had? The, oftentimes, the processes have very complex instructions. They're difficult to use. And I use the example of a smartphone. How many people have smartphones and how many people have actually read the manual that goes along with the smartphone? And very few, if any, because there, is, there isn't a manual. The other piece that I think is really important to understand and uh, work through is that that psychological safety of allowing people to speak up when they see something is not working well when they see that there's a problem and not be afraid to bring that to the attention of their manager, their leaders, and even with each other to work on it. There's some work that's been done by Kahneman talking about uh, system one and system two thinking. And I think that is part of what we ought to be thinking about here as well, is that when people are really stressed out, really thinking, they tend to default to system one thinking, which is the easiest way to be able to do something rather than system two thinking, which takes a lot more time to really think about it. So you, it, it's, it's just the impact that it has on people. The other thing to worry about is also um, when we think we're multitasking and more work is being done on that to really address and understand that when we're constantly asking people to switch from one task to another, back and forth, back and forth, the cognitive load is significant and people get tired. And as a result, not, their ability to function is less. They get more stressed out. And so, again, burnout is, a, is the sign of what we're trying to work on, but it's the deep-rooted problems with the way we design processes that's contributing to that. And if we don't address those, we're never going to be able to address the burnout. Thanks, Frank. That's very helpful. And uh, uh Vicky here uh, in the studio is trying to keep up as fast as she can with uh, links and things, folks. And anything that gets mentioned that we don't know about right off the uh, you know bat, uh, we will put up on the website in a resource uh, document. All right, let's get to some questions and comments now. Thank you all uh, for uh, getting this chat going. It's already pretty rich, and thanks for the various comments. I'm going to see if I can tie two things uh, 
uh, together. Uh, somebody was asking about the resources uh, that are needed. How do you determine that? And kind of related, there's a question about uh, unboxing and how do you redistribute tasks, Jane? Excuse me, James. Uh, this person is asking, uh, making perhaps one assumption that you might not really have enough staff uh, to begin with to redistribute tasks. So I'll, I'll throw those uh, two at you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Matt. And great questions. I think our maximum amount of cognitive resources is probably very difficult to measure. Um, and I'll say there are definitely days where I feel like my maximum available is quite low. <laughs> so, um, But I think one thing that we can see is the performance uh, and the output that happens via uh, you know, whatever resource that we have available. Now, one of the things that we see, especially that I have been able to see here at CHOP, uh, are folks who operate, who are extremely capable and excellent at what they do. And what I have said is that that little plateau, that max point, um, I feel like a lot of people are operating on the, on that plateau where they have minimal or no spare capacity, but they're maintaining good good performance. Um, and that's where I refer to some of the research that, uh, that talks about variability and performance potentially being a precursor um, to when I say poor performance, um, I like to p highlight that as a potential safety event. And so can we potentially uh, look at look at safety events even from a workload and capacity uh, perspective. And just to answer that, that one question about uh, maximum resources, um, I, would, I would agree with you. Um, and, you know, uh, at top, we are blessed that we have a lot of resources and a lot of folks to do a lot of things. At the same time, I think there are a lot of people who would always argue that I need more people or I need more hours in a day to be able to do what I need to be able to do. What we are hoping to do from a model perspective is if you take the concept of optimization, it takes a lot of different factors and you're able to optimize according to those different factors. I don't think we do a good enough, to, good enough job of taking that statistical optimization towards looking at cognition and our performance. And what I'm hoping to be able to do uh, through our oncology project is to be, be able to take that perspective and to be able to say, well, what is, what is it that's relating to my high level of cognitive load and if you go back to that cognitive lifting concept, is that something that I should be lifting? And what we've seen is that if we do a little bit of a step back and look at the distribution of tasks uh, and roles, we're able to say, you know what, this person is doing something that is probably not appropriate for them, and this person is doing it, and so let's redistribute. Let's look at who's doing what at what time. What time are people coming in? When are people leaving? And how are we balancing all of that? And I think we can do a better job of taking an optimization framework towards that. Sounds right. And um, I want to just ask Frank, maybe just so we don't forget to get it in here, the NASA Task Load Index, which is something you both told us about um, in preparation for the program. And we have put a link in there in, in the chat. Uh, Frank, do you want to tell us uh, what that is and uh, how it could be used? Great, yes. Um, so the NASA Task Load Index is uh, something developed by the National Aeronautic and Space Administration to understand better that when they add a task to an astronaut or a pilot, that the pilot or the astronaut has the capacity to do that task. And I think it goes a little bit along the lines of what people are asking about resources. And the task has a number of questions such as what's the cognitive workload, what's the temporal workload, uh, physical workload, and uh, capacity to be able to do the work. Was the work frustrating to accomplish because it was too complicated or the directions weren't clear? And it, it is very subjective. And we use it during some of our training. We do a little exercise and we ask people that as we simplify the game that we're playing to bring this message across, they continue to say, oh, this was much easier, this is much easier. Now, the reality is that it, it is uh, very subjective, but I think that people will tell you really what it is that's going on. We have to trust the people that do the work to tell you. And it's also that tool that can help you decide if in fact something that you're introducing is a safety intervention that is a must, it absolutely must be done. 
which may, requires more time, let's say we've added a new assessment, but it's absolutely necessary to do that new assessment, that's when you need to go back to the staff and figure out what is it that you no longer need to do that maybe someone else can do it. Because if we just keep piling on and piling on, the workload's gonna get worse and people are gonna get more stressed and then something is gonna fall apart. What people generally do is they'll stop do, doing something else without telling you and then you realize you thought you had that procedure in place and people aren't using it. So the task load index, and, and James, you might wanna comment more on it, I think is, is a great tool. What I find is people enjoy it when we teach it and then I never hear about them using it again. So maybe having a human factors expert on your team would help us remind that these are tools that help us. James, any comments? No, I think you captured it pretty well. Um, it's, uh, it, it is a tool, depending on how much fidelity you want from your workload uh, analysis, it's designed as a task load index. And so to do it, in a really scientific fashion, you would want to identify a task. After completion of that very discrete task, you would want them to take this, uh, take this questionnaire. Um, however, in a real-life clinical environment, it's very difficult to, for example, a nurse to have her take one of these questionnaires after uh, doing a procedure, for example. You might get her after him or her after about a two-hour session or something like that. Um, but as Frank mentioned, it's a, it's a validated tool there's a lot of uh, workload tools out there um, in the human factors world and in the research world. There's many different uh, indices that we can use. Um, one that I used in the past was one called team workload scale as well, if you want to look at kind of like a team aspect to it. Um, but uh, the NASA TLX, I, I think, is a, is a good one. You can download an app on, uh, uh, from the App Store. Uh, it's published by NASA. Uh, it has six different dimensions, uh, mental, physical, temporal, effort, performance, and frustration. And what that allows you to do is um, not look at workload just as kind of a one-dimensional one thing, but it gives you six different dimensions in that sometimes physically it might not be very demanding. I used to work with air traffic controllers where they sat at a desk for their entire uh, shift. So physically it wasn't very demanding, but mentally it was very demanding. And what that allows you to do is when you go in to potentially do interventions for workload, then it gives you a little bit more of a focused way to do your interventions versus just kind of this really broad stroke of workload. James, do we need a human factors engineering expert in our health system <laughs> if we're going to get, get if we're going to get started on these things? Um, I imagine there are people on the program today from organizations that may be working on these things in a variety of ways, but some may be wondering where would we, you know, start to seed some of these ideas. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm sorry, I kind of put you on the spot. Obviously, we would all value having you, having you but what if we don't have one of you? <laughs> um, well, you, uh, you know completely what my bias is, and that I think we should have tons of human factors people everywhere. Okay. <laughs> um, and but, but it is, I mean, I started with my romantic vision of how I think human factors can really impact um not only our hospital, but the health system and our world in general, I think human factors really gives such a unique perspective to um, how we make things better. Um, and w one thing I would like to say is that uh, it's not, a, it, it doesn't go against a lot of the uh, traditional improvement uh, work that has happened and is continuing to happen. Uh, with my center, the CHQA that I'm part of here, at CHOP, uh, I work hand-in-hand -hand with our quality improvement team, and I think there's so much that can be gained with that partnership with human factors and improvement, and I think human factors give such a unique lens to how we look at how we do improvement work. I think that is something that can be really valuable to any health system. Um, if you don't have a human factors person, um, I would like to, I mean, this is, again, my uh, humble opinion, but uh, it is it is hard to train human factors in a short amount of time because it's a, it's, a, it's a science at its core. And so it does require some knowledge and some expertise uh, in that field. 
That being said, um, the the network uh, again, just to plug our network HFTH. Um, I think the link to sign up is is on there. Uh, we really started out as a grassroots effort to try to figure out if there are health systems out there that want this sort of support. Um, maybe it's a consultant support. Maybe it's getting advice on how to hire a human factors person. Um, we're really there to kind of help out um, just anyone who might need that help. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of my <laughs> answer there. Frank, uh, in a moment, uh, we'll uh, say something also about IHI's Patient Safety Executive Development Program, where this will be coming up. But uh, talk a little bit about uh, this question about uh, written policies and procedures and their value. Uh, Somebody is asking about that. Where does all that fit in? Yeah, I think our, our normal reaction to many of these events is we're going to write a new policy. Now, policies are important, but we have to separate policy and procedure. So a policy is what we say is important for us to do. The procedure is how you carry that out. And I think the reaction is we'd love to standardize everything we can, have a written policy, have a written procedure to follow it. And I think that, yes, that's the ideal, but the recommendation is standardize what you can because you can't standardize everything and you can't standardize everything in the same way. And the example I use is at an organization where they had more policies and procedures in a book that they didn't even know how many they had and how many of them conflicted with each other because no one stopped and took the time to actually look at them. But if the policy says at our hospital, we will always use age and date of birth as the identifiers of a patient, you now have set up everybody to fail. That is because age and date of birth or name and date of birth will work for adults, people who can respond to those questions, people who are not cognitively impaired. But what if your hospital is one that has a pediatric wing and maybe an Alzheimer cognitively impaired section? You can't ask them for name and date of birth, so automatically you're in violation of the policy. My recommendation is always let the policy say, we will always use two patient identifiers, and then let the work areas determine what's the best way for us to do that, to determine what's the best identifier in a NICU, what's the two best identifiers in a toddler ward, an adult ward, trauma, because each one of those is going to have to be a little bit different. You still have to identify the patient, but you cannot ask a name and date of birth for someone who can't answer that question. So I don't want people to to go walk away and say, Frank's saying policies are not important. The policies are important. It's how we use them as leverage and how we then build the right processes, just as we're talking about now. How do we make it easy for people to carry out the policy and stick to it? Frank, when we uh, first started working with Chris Hayes, you, um, a highly adoptable improvement you spoke of, and I remember Chris also used the term maximally uh, adoptable improvement. One of the things he was dealing with um, was uh, of kind of a reaction among staff, physicians, nurses, and others in organizations who felt they were drowning in QI initiatives. Uh, and expectations, um, sort of doing two jobs, which some people could speak of maybe romantically, but others felt uh, they were absolutely um, drowning uh, in, in QI initiatives. Is that still a problem? Um, the way James has been talking about it, and you to some extent, is that we're bringing human factors to bear on the the central kind of tasks that have to happen in healthcare organizations today. Now, that may include improvement uh, initiatives as well. But is the problem uh, too many QI things going on and that that is in some sense um, <laughs> contributing to cognitive overload? The reality is that we can only manage so many QI initiatives. And I like to stay away from the word project because the work that we do is ongoing. It never ends. It's just that as we identify where are we working, and in my work around the world, as I find that oftentimes there are more initiatives going on and none of them get completed. And then because they're not completed, a new initiative is started to make up for what the first one never accomplished. 
But I think there has to be some project management tools. And again, I use the word project here, but there's gonna be a way of saying the things that we are working on are things that align with our goals and what we're trying to accomplish for our patients within this time period. There's got to be some ways of managing those, that workload of how many do we do, when do we do them, having milestones. Uh, Bell & Health is a wonderful example of how they manage all of this work in 90-day cycles, 120-day cycles, to ensure that the work goes on to provide the appropriate support as needed. And then if, in fact, they've misjudged that it took more time or it needs more resources, they can adjust and not just let it languish and fail and nothing ever happens. So it is, yes, we are trying to do too many things. We need to really step back and manage the things that we can. And as a department director, when our chief executive at Children's Hospital in Boston said, we are going to have the best pediatric hospital in the world with the definition of what that means, I had to translate that from my department as to how does pharmacy contribute to that goal? And I think without that translation, we find that people just don't know what to work on. And if we can link that, not only the number of initiatives, limit those, but link them to what we actually need to do, I think we'll have much more success in what it is we're trying to accomplish. All right. If I could just... Yeah, please, in. James, go right ahead. Just, just, just real quick, um, everything, echo everything Frank said. And one of the things that I have... Uh, observed that I am affectionately calling it um, a, a PDSA fatigue <laughs> or change fatigue. Um, and we all know and love the PDSA cycle and as, a, as an improvement tool and something that has been super, super effective. Um, but I think it can also get abused when we Im implement it just as a, let's try something until something sticks. And I think that's where human factors can come in to help with some of this is that um, I don't have the picture for it, but there's a model called the information processing model, and I'm happy to share that with anybody. Just shoot me an email um, but for what happens in our brains. But basically, uh, what it says is that we process information constantly. And so when it's easier for me to know and predict what's going to happen, then it's basically easier on my brain. And um, the example that human factors professionals we love to use is a well-designed door handle. Um, I can look at it, I can recognize what's going to happen. Just so everyone on the line um, knows one human factors rule of thumb, uh, and there's a lot, but if I can give you one to go away with, it's that recognition is greater than recall. Meaning you can design systems where it's immediately um, obvious to you to recognize what you're supposed to do with it instead of having to recall. Go back to my memory, go back to my training and try to recall what that is. And so a well-designed door handle, as we've all experienced, um, makes it easy for me to see it and pull it if it's a pull handle. A poorly designed door handle, then what do we do with it? Well, one day we might try a push sign, or another day we might try a bigger push sign, or another day we might try a hand wave device. We might keep trying things and then we might find something that sticks. Or we can incorporate human factors, and to me, um, it, it resides on a foundation of empathy. Um, what I've been talking about human factors here at the, at the hospital is as an empathy science and that we really bring a scientific framework to do this thing called empathy. And it does take a little bit of time in that we need to really understand the human and the system in which the human's operating. And then we're able to, once we understand that thoroughly, then we can implement human-centered solutions. And that change fatigue that I referred to um, for me, it's similar to my children. If I tried out uh, a, a time for them to go to sleep, like 7 p.m. tonight, and then next week try a different time and a different routine, I think it, it changes up the routine so much, and our brains um, have to continually change and ad adjust and modify. And, and Madge, to your question, I think while I love the, the spirit of innovation and improvement, I think when we have too much of these kind of rapid fire QI initiatives, I do think it can have a, a load on our cognitive uh, workload and then potentially impact our work as well. You know, the word you mentioned of empathy, I think will uh, certainly resonate uh, for Paige. And I'm, I want to acknowledge a couple questions and comments that we may not be able to delve into in any depth as we get to the top of the hour with Paige. 
uh, raising some concerns about the uh, culture among surgeons, uh, where it seems quite difficult, uh, at least uh, in her experience, uh, for anybody to uh, speak up and basically make an admission that something is is somehow less than ideal uh, would be perceived as a sign of weakness. So I think that uh, term empathy there is key in terms of understanding uh, the uh, realities of being a human being as opposed to being superhuman. Um, I know that uh, a couple of other areas uh, that people are asking about is capturing human factors data. Wow, I guess that may be another show <laughs> that we have to uh, design. Uh, but perhaps, um, uh, Mo, here, if we go back uh, to James's bio slide, we can remind people about how they can get in touch with him directly, uh, as well as we were just showing uh, some of the organizations. Uh, that may have some of that information. So what I want to do now is is start to wrap up, and I'm going to turn to uh, Frank first uh, just to make sure we do get in one mention of something that's coming up, uh, and then we'll go back to James uh, and uh, tie things up. So, uh, Frank, um, you really want to and are integrating human factors and stress much more in this patient safety executive development program coming up in March. Anything you want to say about that? Sure. Our program is designed for individuals who are responsible for implementing, carrying out a safety program, whether it be in a hospital, in a large system, or even in a department. So we welcome all comers because we believe everybody's important in developing those safety initiatives. And our program is built over a seven-day period. It's an executive program. And we not only cover the development of culture and how to deal with culture, et cetera, but we also spend some time on the learning system, which includes improvement science. And and built into all of that is also all of this human factor discussion, because we cannot continue to build processes and design them in a way that makes it more difficult for people to do the work. More more information is available on IHI.org slash PSE, or you can reach me directly if you are interested in learning more about the course. All right. Thank you so much, Frank. And that's F Federico at IHI.org. James, what you alluded to some new work you will be uh, focusing on or emerging work uh, at CHOP. Um, I imagine every time you speak about this issue, you've got a lot of people fired up and ready uh, to sign on some uh, dotted line. Uh Maybe I'll put you on the spot and say, what would you uh, suggest people uh, do with some of this energy tomorrow? Oh, geez. Um, (laughs) I often say to people, who would you talk to next? Who would you tell about this program? um, Let's, you know, let's let's put it, let's use it for good and not for evil. And uh, I think... Uh, the more that we can get, and I've been I've been kind of socializing this concept of human factors thinking, um, kind of like design thinking, uh, where people can start thinking about their hospital systems in a different way. Looking, I had somebody come up to me the other day and say, "Hey James, I human factored our uh, soap dispenser," and um, that I mean I loved it. I, I don't know if human factor is a verb, but um, I love the fact that they're they're starting to think about, oh, why is this here? Frank talked about workarounds. Every time I see a sticky or a sign, a piece of paper and tape. Um, everyone should ask that question, like, why is this here? Or why am I doing this workaround? Not that you're doing something wrong, but you have figured out that this work as it was designed was too cumbersome. And so you're doing this workaround. And so let's raise that issue and then let's try to figure out a new way to do it that makes it easier for you to do. Thank you so much, uh, James Wan uh, from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Human Factors Engineer. So grateful for your time and appreciated all the help uh, with planning the program. And a big thank you to Frank Federico, IHI's own uh, vice president and one of our leading safety experts. Uh, So thrilled to bring the two of you together in this space to have such an important conversation. And hopefully a lot of the resources we've got here in the chat that were mentioned, 
can listen back to the recording. Everything will be up on IHI.org and also as a podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get them. Um, you can subscribe here. Um, you'll be reminded of some resources that you can tap into uh, as a means of maybe sharing some of this with perhaps some of the people you think are the most stubborn and cannot seem to take in the idea uh, that there is stress and um, there could be some solutions uh, that actually uh, will improve things overall, uh, not just for staff, but for patients too. So uh, let's let's put that uh, uh, feather in there and hope for that. Uh, next up on WHI, we're going to be talking about pathways to population health in February. And uh, don't forget, when you get off the program today, you can download the chat, our slides, um, and there's a nice brief survey. We do want to know um, how this program worked for you and anything we can do to improve it. Any questions whatsoever, don't forget, you can email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible, and they include Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Mo Berry, Val Weber, and Brianna Cohen is with us today as well. It's my privilege to host this program, and I hope it shows, because it's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks for listening to WIHI. For a deeper dive into safety, join us for IHI's Patient Safety Executive Development Program, taking place March 12 to 18, 2020, in Boston, Massachusetts. Work alongside IHI's trusted safety professionals and clinicians from around the world to design a safety plan tailored to your organization's needs and ensure that your patients receive the safe and reliable care they deserve. For more information, head to IHI.org PSC. That's PSC for Patient Safety Executive.